Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Toronto, Canada is Rebecca Wellam. Rebecca is Vice President of Compliance and Diversity at Geotab. And today we're going to be talking about third-party vetting, not just the sort of traditional anti-corruption, but also from an ESG perspective. So first, Rebecca, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's exciting. Thank you. Oh, our pleasure. My pleasure. So let's get going. Um, a few years ago, you know, when we talked about third-party vetting, it focused on issues like anti-corruption. Since then, it's expanded to human trafficking, modern slavery, and and, and the host of environmental concerns as well. Um, one of the things is we can't look at everything, but what should the compliance team and the business be looking at from an ESG perspective these days? So, so I think you, you kind of hit it on the nose, right? From my perspective, ESG isn't new. It's just a repackaging of things that, that we've been doing for quite some time. And it's repackaging it in a way that makes it more traceable, auditable, accountable, uh, reliable, right? Um, and so from my perspective and, and through my experience, the, the places that you start and the things that help you to, to refine where you need to look by industry is to start with your material sourcing. Uh, know If you know where everything in your product is coming from or every part of your service is being delivered from, you can then understand, I think, what's most important to the business as a priority to go dig deeper into. The other area that I have always started with has been with in-person physical inspection of the places where I'm doing business or through the vendors that I'm doing business with. So to every extent possible, at least at the tier top tier levels of, of my value chain, I make sure that I can go in at with no notice and, and do somewhat of a physical inspection or for every meeting that I go to, I make sure that I do a tour kind of thing. Um, that way, if I can see, you know, just with the naked eye, that uh, you know the the lunchroom is out of whack, or that somehow the EHS papers haven't been updated and recertified. You know th those kind of small little signals are what will drive me to look more at their whole value chain of labor conditions or their whole value chain of material sourcing. Right? If I mm -hmm. if I see that the value of uh, our commodities are, you know, by and large from the Republic of Congo, right? Um, the the idea there is then I'm going to be looking for above ground mined and making sure that they're ethically mined materials. And um, so, so, but that helps me to focus, if that makes sense. No, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, you're right to point out that the little clues often speak volumes that if some of the most basic things aren't right, you can't have faith unless you check a lot deeper that the larger, more serious issues are. Now, mm -hmm. does this change call for a different process for third parties, uh, vetting and tool sets than we used in the past, or can we simply leverage what we already have? Well, I think it depends on the type of sized business you are, or the type of business that you are, right? I think from small and medium businesses, uh, it's a huge change, right? They've not had to look at this. And in some regards, they're not going to have to now, right? They're not going to be necessarily mandated under SEC regulations if they're small and they're privately held. That said, I mean, they have a real value to play in the grander ESG scheme as being, you know, 
those companies that can competitively differentiate themselves on an ESG front, right? So I may be a small business and I don't necessarily have to go to the kind of detail that we're asking for in terms of reporting, but if I can pr promote myself as somebody who is environmentally stable, I can then tell this larger customer of mine that I'm a good part of that value chain for that reason. So if the tool sets have to reflect that, and I think, you know, I go through some, you know, Fortune 50 kind of experience that I've had where the reality is we have centralized purchasing models and we have centralized purchasing tools and we have people with commodity skill sets versus, you know, the, uh, the small business that one person's running the whole shop. So I think we don't have to new new tools, but we need to augment those tools with different templates and and broaden our scope of understanding of what tools or what templates and data we need to collect. Right. So when I when I think about, again, material sourcing and going down that whole chain of material custody, right, where I used to be concerned about whether or not it was coming from a bad region of China. Now I'm going to be looking at where the the product components are coming from and are they all still in China? Where is the minerals coming from? Where are the materials coming to create those components? Like I'm going to have to dive deeper, which means my templates are going to have to get far more robust and detailed. So I don't think we need new tools, but we do need to sort of broaden our scope and maybe uh, the smaller we are consider adopting new tools uh, that play into those larger conglomerate kind of data collection schemes. It's interesting. It sounds as if we both need to broaden our scope and start thinking about microscopes to really get to the fine details. Now, auditing is obviously going to be very important these days. What should we be asking from vendors in terms of audit rights and how should companies really be exercising them? So you're right. I, and I think I I've said this and, and it's something that a lot of companies just need to sort of buckle down on audit rights. Don't set seem to raise a red flag until you really need them. Right. So I've seen way too many contracts that neglected to carry those audit rights or where, when you start to renegotiate into that contract, the right to audit, it becomes something that you're getting paid, asked to pay more for. The reality is you need to be able to do paper audits. And again, the smaller the company, even the bigger companies are going to want to do as much on paper as possible, right? Because that's the least cost impactful. Um, but you need to be able to have the right to audit physically on site uh, with notice and without. And I think the reason you need to be able to exercise that right uh, to audit without notice is because when you do see one of those little flags and you do see some of those micro um, not so good sort of red flags that, that maybe something may not be, you need to be able to go in and confirm that something's happened or has not. Now, a lot of times those contract rights will be, um, and I'm not a lawyer, but, but I'll tell you that, you know, I've seen them where you've got to give two weeks notice, which is sort of your typical ISO thing. Um, but if something's happened, you need to be able to go in as frequently as possible right, to verify that that issues have been remediated. Um, so for instance, if it's a, a situation where um, labor rights has been infringed because people are wear, working excessive overtime, the reality is you can get the, the file and the paper from that vendor and say, 
that says, yep, yeah, no, we've got, here's our records. We've, we've, we've solved that problem. That's all well and good. They can sort of defraud you that way too. They can show you something that you want to see. It's no problem. If you don't go in and, and actually witness and talk to people and hear it, uh, that's a different uh, sort of ball game and they can't sort of defraud you when you're doing that. And I think that's the kind of diligence that we're looking for or that the regulators are looking for more, more accurately um, in the new ESG regulations coming through the mandatory reporting in the EU, et cetera. So that's actually a perfect lead into my next question, which is when something goes wrong, and as we all know, sooner or later, something somewhere will, it's going to be crucial for companies to be able to demonstrate that they did their best at vetting the vendor. You know, when the regulator comes knocking, you want to show, look, I did all these things. What documents should they hold on to to demonstrate their commitment to working with reliable, honorable third parties and that, you know, you really did your homework? So, so again, it goes a bit back to that centralized purchasing model. One of the things that is a best practice is that you sort of rebid your your product, your components, your practices, and your services every so often with you know major competitors. So that's one. I think that right off the top, if if we were to talk to a regulator who was trying to enforce these kinds of laws, if they didn't see us trying to rebid the business and find people who were you know, behaving more ethically, then I think that would be a red flag to them. Secondarily, I think we need to, when we have these vendors onboarded and we are exercising our rights to audit, we need to track and keep the documentation related to those things. So first you're, you're looking for the self declarations that they meet all of the requirements. You're looking at any kind of third party audits that they have carried out. Um, and I think uh, for smaller companies, we're going to want to focus on things that are you know, standardized certifications. I'm thinking like the uh, manufacturing RBA certification, or I'm thinking of on the electronic side, the R2 certifications. Um, these are certifications that really speak to all of the ESG fundamentals that we're looking at. And if these folks can meet the minimum rigor of those certifications, it helps us in a great deal um, to reduce the workload and the cost ownership of our compliance in this regard. We're also going to need to keep those audit trails. So when we've gone in and we've done an inspection or we've done the outcomes of a, a paper audit, the summaries need to be kept. The, you know, the findings need to be documented well. The, the you know, remediations need to be documented and, and followed up on and the dates that they're um, executed have to be captured. It is very much minutiae and it's something that, again, the, the greater size the company, the more complex the business, the more complex all of that's going to be and the far greater detail you're going to be trying to get to. Um, but um, I think the outcomes of this too are that small, again, I'm trying to get into this head of small business, medium business, because um, this is so brand new for all of them that uh, they're going to want to understand how they play into this whole bigger scheme and how that can be a real competitive advantage for them. Absolutely. Now, you're also the chief diversity officer at GeoTab, and I'm assuming the commitment of the organization to diversity extends to the supply chain as well. Yep. How can organizations make diversity a successful part of their sourcing initiatives? So with this, I'm looking at things uh, from an example of U.S. government uh, and their requirements to have small 
minority women disadvantaged owned businesses a part of the uh, value chain for supporting that that uh, business from the U.S. government. And again, it, what I'm looking for in terms of this example is that they're mandating that we go out and build a diverse uh, value chain, uh, which would ultimately reflect what we want to see in our own um, businesses, right? And so by going out and searching locally for uh, a small minority woman disadvantaged owned business to be a part of the infrastructure of my own company or the operations of my own company, I'm actually doing something that creates diverse jobs outside of my four walls and helps to tick all my boxes and demonstrate that the, the investment I'm making in diversity extends well beyond uh, just the, the numbers that are on my own roster. Um, it's an important, I think, example of why I think small businesses need to understand what ESG is and what larger companies are looking for in ESG to be able to demonstrate their competence there that they can play a competitive uh, role in. And it's all about being competitive uh, for companies, you know, not just from a terms of products, but being a place where people want to work and an organization that is able to really demonstrate its commitment to doing the right thing. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <music>